dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Hey there, welcome to the Matt Watch That podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, when I graduated college as a film major, I knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment industry and didn't care if it was in movies or TV. I was just trying to get the proverbial foot in the door. I sent my resume to every broadcast channel, cable channel, premium channel, specific shows, production companies. I had more rejections than Akeem Olajuwon. Then, a recent graduate from CW Post, my alma mater, had called a professor there to ask if there were any graduates who could fill a temporary position at AMC. Not the theater chain. AMC known for Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and The Walking Dead. The professor had given my name because I was his favorite student. See, it pays to kiss up. So I received a call, and in speaking with him, we realized that we had a couple of classes together. I remember him specifically because he's the son of one of Billy Joel's touring members back in the 80s, who also played on his most influential albums. For his senior thesis, he made a documentary about Billy Joel and his historic trip to Russia. I had walked into the suite where he was editing and asked why Billy Joel was wishing him a happy birthday, and that's when he explained. So we started talking about the position, which included answering viewer phone calls, emails, and letters. To make a long story short, too late? I was brought in as a temp, and when the position became permanent, they offered me the job, and I willingly accepted. I owe a lot to him. Not only did he give me an opportunity, which turned into my first job, but he encouraged me to get my master's degree, which was helpful in getting my second job. So thank you, Jesse. At the time, AMC was transitioning. They were still called American Movie Classics, but instead of showing movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's or Some Like It Hot, they were showing Speed, which is a modern classic in the action genre, but not exactly what the channel was originally intended for. My job evolved, I got a couple of promotions, and eventually I was tasked with monitoring the network, making sure all the promos and the graphics were scheduled and airing properly. Yeah, that's a job. So I had a television in my office where I would watch AMC all day. In the mornings, we would air a lot of westerns. This wasn't exactly a genre that interested me, but I was never really exposed to them either. It's like saying you don't like Brussels sprouts when you've never tried them. You might have some legitimate reasons. They smell a little funky, the texture is odd. But until you've tasted it, how do you really know? The western genre had all but died out when I was growing up. Every couple years, one would make a splash at the box office and return into the public consciousness. Back to the Future 3, Silverado, Young Guns, Dances with Wolves, Unforgiven. Over the past few years, there have been a couple of remakes like The Magnificent Seven and True Grit. Deadwood was a popular HBO series, and Red Dead Redemption is one of the best-selling video game series ever. But for the most part, the genre is not the draw that it once was. Working at AMC, I started to appreciate these movies. It's one of the only genres that America can claim. It's our Old West, our frontier, our folklore. 
It's a visual representation of our history and evolution as a country. So on this episode, we are celebrating all things Western, starting with this week's movie. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars, Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars, Standard Fair. Four stars, Worth Checking Out. And five stars, Must See. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969. It was directed by George Roy Hill, who helmed Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Great Waldo Pepper, Slapshot, Funny Farm, and won an Academy Award for The Sting. The screenplay was written by William Goldman, the gold standard, pun intended. He wrote the novels Marathon Man, Magic, The Princess Bride, Heat, as well as their on-screen adaptations. He also scribed the screenplays for The Hot Rock, The Stepford Wives, All the President's Men, Misery, Maverick, Absolute Power, Absolute Legend. Reading his work is pure joy. The film starts off with what looks like a newsreel on a projector screen, informing us that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid have died. So, uh, spoiler. These images are played over the opening credits. What's interesting, and I'll talk more about the music later, is that the score is a little subdued in this sequence. Normally, when you picture westerns like The Magnificent Seven, it has a boisterous theme. Dun, 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 dun. But here it almost sounds like a sitar being plucked. It does eventually add more instrumentation, like a clarinet, some percussion, but it's definitely subtle. Butch Cassidy strolls into a bank around closing time. His eyes are focused on the security guards, tellers, money vault. He's obviously scouting the place and soon leaves with a checklist in his head. He meets up with the Sundance Kid who's engaged in a game of blackjack and winning soundly when he's accused of cheating by another man. Them's fighting words in the West. Butch attempts to talk down Sundance. Once the accuser hears his name, he immediately apologizes. This simple scene gives you so much information about both men. Butch is more level-headed, avoids confrontation, likes to ease tension, whereas Sundance is more reactionary, ready to draw his weapon and show his prowess as a proficient gunslinger. The main characters are portrayed by Paul Newman as Butch Cassidy, known for The Hustler, Cool Hand Luke, HUD, Slapshot, and won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role for The Color of Money, and Robert Redford as the Sundance Kid, whose roles include The Natural, All the President's Men, Barefoot in the Park, and won an Academy Award for Best Director of Ordinary People. Now a little trivial trivia. Both lead actors were influenced by this movie to name passion projects after. Paul Newman established the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp for Kids with Cancer and Other Childhood Ailments. Robert Redford created the Sundance Film Festival, an annual event taking place in Utah showcasing independent movies. Butch and Sundance return to base camp where the Hole in the Wall Gang are waiting. They inform Butch that they're going to rob the train, the Overland Flyer, but he shoots down that idea. One of the members, Harvey, wants to be in charge and challenges Butch for leadership of the gang. You expect this fight to be grandiose, but it ends pretty quickly in a humorous fashion. In an ironic turn of events, Butch decides to follow Harvey's plan anyway to rob the Overland Flyer. Here's a quote without context. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. 
So the Hole in the Wall gang's plan goes off without a hitch, and they find themselves with grand rewards. To celebrate their success, Butch and Sundance visit a brothel. They briefly discuss about going straight and enlisting to fight the Spanish. They exchange their real names, which is a nice detail to show that even though they're close, there are elements of their lives they don't know about each other. As Butch gets it on with a Lady of the Night, Sundance leaves to meet up with his friends with benefits at a place, played by Catherine Ross, who is in The Stepford Wives, Donnie Darko, Tell Them Willie Boy is Here, and was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for The Graduate. Despite being involved with Sundance, she has a flirtatious relationship with Butch as well. This is my odd movie observation. I really don't like horses. Something that large with those skinny legs freaks me out. It's unnatural. It's like those gym rats that skip leg day and basically have the shape of a spinning top. But there's something nice about the sound of a gallop. During their second robbery of the Overland Flyer, another train arrives with a cavalry that chases after the Hole in the Wall gang. They were hired by Mr. Harriman, chairman of the Union Pacific Railroad, who wants them dead. A cat and mouse game proceeds. Can Butch and Sundance continue to evade capture? Will their luck run out? Yes, we've already been told that. But that doesn't mean the adventure isn't worthwhile. This film is amazing. I can see modern audiences not having the patience, especially when Butch and Sundance are being pursued by the cavalry. It's almost 30 minutes of encounters and escapes, but the interaction between the leads always remained interesting to me. The movie is surprisingly funny. I mean, William Goldman is a genius writer, so it shouldn't be. But you don't equate westerns with being a laugh riot. But there are some crisp one-liners played completely straight, dialogue dripping with sarcasm, and you can't get two better actors to deliver those quips. The introduction of both characters was beautifully shot. For Butch Cassidy, there was an archway that perfectly framed Paul Newman's face. What I liked about the intro to the Sundance Kid was that even when other people were talking, the camera was still focused on Robert Redford and his reaction to everyone. In this day and age, there would be at least three or four cuts to each person, but they're not the important subject here. It goes on for at least a minute without cutting. All on Sundance. It's these nice touches that really elevate a film. This is something to look out for. Cloris Leachman from Young Frankenstein has a small role as Agnes. Ted Cassidy, who's known most famously as Lurch from the Addams Family television series, plays one of the Hole in the Wall gang members, Harvey. And Sam Elliott from Roadhouse has a blink-or-you'll-miss-it part as a card player. He would eventually go on to marry actress Catherine Ross in 1984. The cinematography was captured by Conrad Hill, whose filmography includes The Professional, Tequila Sunrise, Searching for Bobby Fischer, and won three Academy Awards for American Beauty, Road to Perdition, and not surprisingly, this movie. They shot on location in Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and California. The landscapes are beautiful, especially in establishing shots when they're traveling across a deep chasm and surrounded by the plateaus and mountain ranges. Just spectacular to look at. It makes westerns not only look visually different than other genres, but feel more grand. It was edited by John C. Howard, who worked on Mel Brooks's films Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and History of the World Part 1, and Richard C. Meyer, who's known for Capone and Waterloo. I thought it was an interesting choice not to subtitle the dialogue spoken in Spanish. You still get a sense of what's going on through body language and looks. There's certainly no confusion, but I think most of us are used to movies that spell out every single thing we should know. It's refreshing that a movie treats you like an intelligent adult. 
The score was composed by Burt Bacharach, and for his efforts, he won an Academy Award for Best Music, Original Score for a Motion Picture, Not a Musical. This wasn't your traditional Western score. The music was sparse and mostly used over montages. Where there were music cues, it was appropriate and made an impact. It was just enough. The soundtrack featured the hit song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, with music by Burt Bacharach and lyrics by his long-term writing partner, Hal David, which won an Academy Award for Best Music, Original Song. Together, they co-wrote popular tunes Close to You, Arthur's Theme, and That's What Friends Are For. I initially thought this song would be out of place because I've heard it covered by many pop artists, but this arrangement fits well within the film. The runtime is 1 hour 50 minutes, perfecto. It had a budget of $6 million and grossed $102 million at the box office. It was the top-grossing film released in 1969. It was nominated for seven Oscars at the 1970 Academy Awards and won four. Ultimately, the movie comes down to 1, 2, 3, go! Meet the Future, Dynamite, Torches, 2-Bit Outlaws, White Skimmer, Fighter Give, Rosetta Stone, Payroll Guard, and Shootout. I give it Five out of five stars. A first for the Matt Watch That podcast. The montage sequences could have been cut down a scotch, but I honestly can't find much flaw with this movie. Wonderful cinema. This is what filmmaking should be. If you've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. I've been exposed to a lot of music in my life. My mom listened to some dance and pop artists like ABBA, Frankie Valli, Donna Summer, the Pointer Sisters. My brothers were into mainstream artists like Paul Simon, Billy Joel, Genesis, The Police. My aunts introduced me to classic rock like Pink Floyd, Queen, The Who, The Beatles. MTV showcased a lot of female performers and new wave bands like Cyndi Lauper, The Go-Go's, The Bangles, The Cure, Eurythmics. My music teachers taught me jazz and blues. And my friends, along with FM radio stations and the changing culture, turned me on to grunge, metal, industrial, and rap. We'll skip over my emo years and don't ask why I know every One Direction song. But my dad was into country music. He would listen to Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, Trisha Yearwood, The Judds, Mary Chapin Carpenter. It wasn't until he bought an album called Third Rock from the Sun by Joe Diffie, released in 1994, that I became a country convert. It has one of my favorite ballads, So Help Me Girl, simple lyrics, great harmonies. Then, a year later, country music burst into the mainstream with Shania Twain and her second album, The Woman and Me. Her midriff certainly helped. Then Faith Hill crossed over, followed closely by the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks. What I like most about country music is its honesty. It's allowed to be emotional and deep without any metaphors. The artists wear their hearts on their sleeves. It can also be silly with songs about how much you love your pickup truck. But either way, it's pure. And I don't think you can find better storytellers. Each song is like a three-act movie in three minutes. You hear the first verse and wonder, Okay, where is this going? And you're taken on a ride. I'm also amused with the thought of these macho men in 20-gallon hats, big belt buckles, spurs on their boots, and a deer carcass in their trunk, talking about their heartache or how much they miss their dead dog. 
It's also a genre that originated in America. There aren't a lot of British artists doing country. No one said to me recently, have you heard the country song by that Albanian musician? It's a rare genre that we can claim. So I'm going to post a few music videos of random country songs that tell some great stories. In Color by Jamie Johnson, Sleep at Night by The Chicks, So Help Me Girl by Joe Diffie, and I Couldn't Leave Out The Queen, Dolly Parton with Jolene. These clips are available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about The Young Riders, which was an American Old West show revolving around members of the Pony Express in the Nebraska Territory. But don't worry, this was just the premise. Episodes didn't revolve around the delivery of mail. Mr. Jenkins, this letter arrived for you. Thanks, kid. Can you take this parcel to Beauregard Fairweather in Carson City, Nevada? Do you mean Nevada? It starred Anthony Zerby, Josh Brolin, Stephen Baldwin, Time Miller, Greg Rainwater, Travis Fine, and Yvonne Suhor. The first season included primetime Emmy and Oscar winner Melissa Leo. Don Franklin joined in the second season, and Christopher Pettit played a teenage Jesse James in season three. While the series is based in historical truth and includes notable Western icons Wild Bill Hickok and William Cody, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill, not to be confused with the Put the lotion in the basket, Buffalo Bill, the show is completely fictionalized. It does touch upon subjects that were relevant at that time, such as the Confederacy and the slave trade, as well as Western tropes, good versus evil, gunfighting, horse riding, stagecoach robberies, gambling. I completely missed out on this show the first time around, but a couple of years ago I caught it on an over-the-air network like Cozy TV or Get TV, one of those, and got completely hooked. It's fun watching early roles for known actors, and the performances are pretty good. There are some well-choreographed stunts and fight scenes, but I'm most impressed with the cinematography. The series was filmed in Arizona, and they utilized the desert, rock formations, canyons, and landscapes well. The main sets were located at the old Tucson studios, where many famous westerns were shot, including Gunfight at the OK Corral, El Dorado, Gunsmoke, and Little House on the Prairie. The series was created by Ed Spielman, who was also behind Kung Fu. The show, not the martial art. The Young Riders was on for three seasons, 68 episodes, from 1989 to 1992. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I plan on having interactive elements, so follow, subscribe, and like for all the latest news, updates, and polls. Until next time, goodbye Bolivia. Alright, we're gonna get some levels here before I start talking, yeah! <laughs> Making sure that all the promos and graphics were scheduled and airing property. Property? Wow. Whereas Sundance is more reactionary, ready to draw his weapon and show his prowess as a proficient blah 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 blah.